The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Russus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Our Doxology, Chalcedon Position Paper, number 107. We are very clearly told in Acts 6, 7, that in the earliest days of the church, quote, the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith, unquote. The religious control of Judea, was firmly in the hands of Rome through collaborators. As a result, men of faith were routinely shelved by Rome and the Sanhedrin in favor of pragmatic men. The goal of these pragmatists were freedom for Judea. But meanwhile, an astute policy of resistance and compromise prevailed. Until the Jewish-Roman War of A.D. 66-70, through 70, the Roman and Jewish leadership maintained an uneasy alliance. The Christians, with their faith in Jesus Christ as the world's Messiah and in terms of His Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20, were outsiders to this situation. However, many Jews they converted, and priests as well, the Judean goal was at odds with their purpose. Caiaphas, the high priest, had expressed clearly the national perspective. Quote, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. Unquote. John eleven fifty. In Judea, as well as throughout the Roman Empire, the Christian converts were largely Israelites. Dr. Jacob Jocks, a brilliant Jewish Christian scholar, has described Judaism as believing in man's ability to save himself 
with help from God. Quote, Man only sins, but is not sinful. Unquote. Man at birth is pure and sinless, not fallen. It is a religion of self-salvation whose essence is ethics. Quote, the covenant of God with man is never broken. Unquote. Quote, Israel's sufferings sufficiently warrant their redemption, regardless of repentance. Unquote. Righteousness is not imputed, but attained. Hence, in Judaism and Christianity, we have, quote, two worlds diametrically opposed to each other, unquote. Jacob Jocks, The Jewish People and Jesus Christ, pages 264 through 286, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Baker Bookhouse, 1941 and 1979. It is easy to see why there was conflict between the two faiths. It was inescapable. The question is this. After the close of the New Testament era, was the conflict only an intellectual one, or did it continue to be one in which Jewish Christians were in a charged emotional conflict against their unconverted brethren? Did Jewish conversions dwindle after the fall of Jerusalem, or did they continue? Were only the Ebionites and a few other left of Jewish Christianity, or did the conversions continue? and the absorption into the world faith of Jewish Christians become an influence of note? Or was it only the Hellenic converts who then shaped the church? <clears throat> or was it only the Hellenic converts who then shaped the church? Were the Jewish Christians only a remnant of Israel, or were the unbelievers the remnant? These are questions which cannot be answered with certainty, but they need to be asked, and some direction determined, if possible. We do know that in many churchmen over the centuries were converted Jews. Eusebius, in Constantine's day, gave a list of a number of Jewish bishops. Earlier, Justin's dialogue made clear that Jews were very much a part of the faith and that the debate, tension, and conversion factors remained very much as in St. Paul's day. Much later, Jewish popes appear from time to time, indicating the continuing presence, zeal, and importance of Jewish Christians. Early in the 11th century, Hildebrand became pope as Gregory VII. Jewish descent has been ascribed to him. Whether this is true or not, we do not know. We do know that, in a crisis, he raised an army with, quote, the help of financially gifted Jews, unquote. J.P. Whitney, Hildebrandine Essays, pages 10 and 22, Cambridge University Press, 1921. But there are other indications of a close tie between church and synagogue. In the 12th century, we find that one of the great Armenian church fathers, St. Nurses Snorhali, a writer of hymns, produced hymns which link him to Rabbi Jehuda Halevi of Spain and briefly, Egypt. There are too many links like this to be ignored. The great authority here in a specific area was Eric Werner, a professor of liturgical music who in 1959 published his findings titled The Sacred Circle, The Interdependence of Liturgy and Music in Synagogue and Church During the First Millennium. We know that the earliest term for the church was synagogue, as we see in the Greek text of James 2, 2. The synagogue officers and structure were taken over by the church. 
but Werner showed so too was the liturgy and music. The use of musical instruments was dropped by the synagogue after the fall of Jerusalem. Instruments such as the organ were too joyful for a people in mourning over the fall of their city and country. The old forms were retained in the church, both of the temple and of the synagogue. The Christian church sought to be faithful to the Old Testament church because it saw itself as the true continuation thereof. After Paul, the church saw itself as, quote, the Israel of God, unquote. Galatians 6, 16. <clears throat> Galatians six sixteen. In its better moments, the church's call to the Jews was to come home. This influence and faithfulness to Old Testament liturgical practices continued. Thus, in the Reformation, a notable figure was John Emmanuel Tremelius, 1510-1580, a converted Jew who was born in Ferrara. He became a Catholic about 1540, and his godfather was Cardinal Reginald <clears throat> and his godfather was Cardinal Reginald Pole, later Archbishop of Canterbury. In fifteen forty two, Tremelius became a Protestant and a Calvinist. He was then in England, in Lambeth Palace with Cramer, and also Cambridge before going to Germany when Queen Mary's persecution began. He returned to England in 1565 and concluded his teaching career at Sedan. In England, Tremelius helped frame the 39 articles and assisted in the formation of the Book of Common Prayer. The unification of worship sought by the English reformers meant faithfulness to Scripture and to the biblical precedents in the worship in the temple and the synagogue. The ugly side of the relationship between church and synagogue is often told. In example, enforced baptisms, compulsory Jewish attendance at times to Christian preachings, and so on. At times, the worst in hostility to the Jews were Jewish converts, or men of Jewish ancestry, such as King Ferdinand of Spain and Thomas de Torquemada, the Grand Inquisitor. All the same, the quote, come home, unquote, motive was also very much a fact. When shortly after World War II, Pope Pius XII said that spiritually <clears throat> said that spiritually we are all Semites. He was echoing a centuries old theme. The heretical influence of Marcion led to a division between the Old and the New Testaments, to antinomianism and to <clears throat> and to a hostility to the Jews. As against this, there was always also a belief in the unity of Scripture plus an insistence that faith without works is dead. Matthew seven sixteen through 20 Romans three thirty one James 2, 14-26 And an adherence to the Pauline hope and summons to, quote, come home, unquote. This aspect of church history is of more than academic interest. It is important to know how deep our roots are, that the church is, quote, the Israel of God, unquote, Galatians 6, 16, and that our worship echoes that of Old Testament saints and is linked to the victorious song of the church triumphant, Revelation fifteen three. In the early church, the Greek intellectuals expressed contempt for all music which did not follow the standards of classic Greek music.
They were thus not congenial to the Christian, hence strongly Hebraic music. Many held to the path. <clears throat> Many held to the Pythagorean doctrines, such as the cathartic power of music. This was the theory set forth in Mozart's The Magic Flute, a strongly Masonic opera. Hebraic Christian music was not men-centered. Its goal was not a humanistic, cathartic result, but the glory of God. We can perhaps call the doxology the epitome of truly biblical worship and song because it centers on God, not man. Although it is Trinitarian, the doxology echoes Scripture, the temple, and the synagogue. C. E. Werner, The Sacred Circle, pages 273 through 213. C. E. Werner, The Sacred Circle, pages 213 through 273. The spirit of the doxology and of Hebraic biblical music is well summarized in the first statement of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Quote, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to joy Him forever. Unquote. It is also joyfully expressed in a Christian hymn with an Old Testament root and an ancient Hebrew melody, quote, Leone, unquote, the magnificent, quote, the God of Abraham prays, unquote. The church was not born with us nor with our rebirth. Men who despise their past also despise their future. As Christians, we are the heirs of the ages and heirs in Christ of all things. Romans 8.17, Galatians 3.29, 4.7, Ephesians 3.6, Hebrews 6.17, James 2.5, etc. We have a doxology to sing which resounds across the centuries and is the music of eternity. March 1989 Inferences and Commandments, Chalcedon Position Paper, number 108. The failure to distinguish between God's commandments and inferences made from them has, over the centuries, led to serious moral problems in Judaism and Christianity. When God gives a commandment, He speaks very plainly. There can be no mistake in what He says. His, quote, Thou shalt nots, unquote, and His, quote, Thou shalts, unquote, are blunt and unequivocal. Unhappily, too many people over the centuries have insisted on seeing commandments where there are none. They base their rules and their determination to bind the conscience of the faithful on inferences, sometimes wrongful ones. Not even a valid inference is a commandment. To illustrate, our Lord in Luke twelve forty-eight says, quote, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required, and to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more, unquote. In other words, the greater the responsibility a man has, the greater is his culpability and guilt. In Leviticus 4, the laws of sacrifice set forth this same premise. The sin offering of a priest or prince is a greater one than that of a commoner. God says that in his sight, the greater our responsibilities, the greater is our sin in his sight. A logical inference is that the sins or crimes of important people deserve more punishment. Before God, guilt is greater, according to Leviticus 4, but this greater punishment is not a law for man to enforce, although it is a sound inference. Notice, too, that in Luke 12:48, our Lord says that in such cases men, quote, 
will ask the more, unquote. While it can be done, it is not mandatory. How God enforces His law is not always what He requires of us. The problem becomes even more serious where unwarranted inferences are made. I recall as a student at the university listening to an off-campus Christian speaker who laid down the, quote, law, unquote, in unequivocal terms. The text he used for his particular, quote, mandate, unquote, was very familiar to me, but I had never seen such a meaning in it. My immediate reaction was one of anger. Then I thought that perhaps there was a meaning in the Greek text I was ignorant of. I later learned there was no such meaning only his inference, and a wrong one. The trouble with inferences is that when repeated over and over again, they become a part of the meaning of the law, and people read them into the text. There are many who resent the strange and alien ways in which the U.S. Supreme Court routinely interprets the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Government Printing Office periodically issues a revised edition of a heavy tome entitled The Constitution of the United States, Analysis and Interpretation, which gives us line by line the Constitution with all the interpretations thereof, sometimes of a single word, made by the Supreme Court. At times, by inferences, the original meaning is turned around. Chief Justice John Marshall was known for his ability to take a statement and make it mean what he chose. His cousin, Thomas Jefferson said, quote, When conversing with Marshall, I never admit anything. So sure as you admit any position to be good, no matter how remote from the conclusion he seeks to establish, you are gone. So great is his sophistry, you must never give him an affirmative answer, or you will be forced to grant his conclusion. Why, if he were to ask me whether it was daylight or not, I'd reply, quote, Sir, I don't know. I can't tell, unquote. We have many people who are vehement, strict constructionists with respect to the U.S. Constitution who at the same time are looser than loose constructionists where the Bible is concerned. They erect a vast structure of inferences and call it God's law. What amazes me is that these same people are strongly hostile to theonomy, to God's law. If the law itself is no longer binding, how can strange inferences be made binding? Operation Rescue builds its case on inferences. So too do those who oppose birth control, smoking tobacco, and interest, and so on and on. In his personal life, perhaps a man can seek ways which his conscience feels are important. But can he bind the conscience of other men? God's law is very plain so that all may understand. Inferences take us into the realm of human conclusions. Anything important enough to be a law and bind our conscience is plainly stated by God. It is not left for men to discover. Inferences can be very, very dangerous, not only to the life of faith, but to our standing before God. People who major in inferences wind up trying to be holier than God, a particularly evil state. See Otto Scott's essay on, quote, Easy Virtue, unquote, pages 7 through 8. Sadly enough, the world of inferences is peopled by persons who began at times with earnestness and a sound zeal. In the time of our Lord, the Pharisees were the result of an earnest and dedicated development of inferences. 
Their inferences in time became more important to them than God's law word. Our Lord attacked them and their misinterpretation with particular intensity because he knew how evil their methodology was. Pharisaism not only continued as Judaism itself, virtually supplanting other parties, but, over the centuries, it has had a powerful influence in Greek Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism. Its appeal is a supposed super-piety and a super-holiness. It appears to offer a greater purity and strength. When our Lord attacks, quote, the tradition of the elders, unquote, Matthew 15, 2, he attacks the tradition of inferences. One example he gives of this brings together the law requiring that one honor his father and his mother, and the law, thou shalt have no other gods before me, an example God's absolute priority. The Pharisees said that one could cease supporting one's parents if the money were dedicated to God instead. This was a logical inference. Yet our Lord called them, quote, hypocrites, unquote, and said, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew fifteen, seven through 9 Was it wrong for the Pharisees to draw inferences, and is it right for churchmen to do so? Did it make the Pharisees hypocrites, while it makes churchmen super-faithful saints? Will the Pharisees triumph again, and destroy their civilization in the process? Remember, God's law is always very plain, even too blunt and plain. Mark Twain was right when he said that what bothered him in the Bible was not what he could not understand, but what he did understand. If it is not plainly written as law by God Almighty, let no man bind your conscience with it. Our Lord said of the Pharisees of his day that they were hypocrites because they gave as God's word that which was their own inference and they bound men by them. Beware of the Pharisees. They are with us still. April 1989 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he has shown us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Oh
Tell the 